First Thessalonians chapter 5. Tonight we're going to talk about a great church, or perhaps some markers of a great church. What is a great church? Do you want to be part of a great church? I trust that you do. And I, I trust that you understand that we are the church. The church isn't just, you know, some uh, collective group of full-time ministers or deacons. You are the church. And our church has an identity. Does our community think of us as a great church? Uh, certainly we have a statement of faith and, and we have our church covenant and those things. And those are identifying things about what we believe and, and some of the things that we stand for. Uh, but the reality is, practically speaking, uh, the, identity, uh, the identity of our church is you and I in the community. Uh, the vast majority of the public has no idea of the statements of faith and the, the articles of our covenants and, the, and all those things, that, and those things that we hold true. And I'll never forget a friend of mine, we were talking about all the infightings, infightings amongst Christians, specifically amongst independent Baptists, and all the variations that there can be there. And, you know, and, and how, you know, if you don't identify or do things a certain way, there might be a group of folks that are going to disagree with you, and, and you might not get along with them. And, and he t said this, he says, I don't care what any of those guys say, or what they think. He said, number one, I want our church to honor God. And he said, but number two, he said, I want us to define in our community what a Baptist is. And so when they see us, they see that it's a, it's a Christian church, a Bible church, if you will. And so I want our church to be great. And listen, I think it is. Some people think a great church is a large church. I challenge you to define large. Some people would think our church is large. I just talked to somebody this week that's from Wyoming, and they said, our church is really large because their community is small and their churches are smaller. So this is a large church. Some people would say, a small church is a great church. Uh, but tonight, I hope you want our church to be great. And so we're going to talk about some markers of this. And I think every Christian who is right with God and understands the teaching of the church in the Bible and the importance that there is laid on the church uh, would long to be a part of a great church. Um, and what I would say is a powerful church. Uh, <clears throat> so as Paul concludes this first epistle uh, to the Thessalonians here, uh, oftentimes we're very familiar with some of the closing uh, comments or, or precepts or commands that he gives uh, from verses 11, kind of down through the end of that chapter. Uh, we're familiar with things like rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. Uh, we quote these things all the time. In verse 11, it says, Comfort uh, yourselves together and edify one another, as even as also ye do. And so there's all these things that he's encouraging the people in Thessalonica to do. Uh, and I would say he's encouraging them to do them so they could be a great church. Um, but tonight, we're going to look at verses 23 down through the end of the chapter. And, and I have four points tonight that I think are markers of a great church. And so... These ought to be markers or identifying characteristics in each of our lives as individuals because we make up the church. I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. 
so if we want to be a great church, we individually have to be obedient to what God has for us. Therefore, collectively, we can be great. Or we can be a powerful church. We can be a church uh, used of God in, in a mighty way. And so if you would stand in honor of reading the Word of God, we're going to read verses 23 down through the end of the chapter here. If you're able, I understand if you're not able, but uh, if you're able, I would appreciate that. Beginning in verse 23, it says, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Father, tonight we do thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to gather together. And so tonight, Lord, I know that the people have taken time away from their week and Lord, they're busy and there's things. And so I know that they've made it a priority to be here. And Father, so I ask that you would touch each every in our heart tonight. Lord, you know the need of each heart, and I pray, Lord, that something from your word would be an encouragement. Lord, would bring conviction, Lord, but whatever the case, that each one of us would be challenged to walk closer to you, that we might be a great church, Lord, in your eyes. And Father, Lord, a church that's on fire, and Lord, really a church that is in action, as we've been hearing about on Sunday nights recently. And so tonight, Father, we need you. Father, I pray for your blessing. I ask that you'd be honored and glorified in all of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> so as Paul concludes this, and, and there, like I said, there's many things that we're familiar with. Clench not the spirit. Uh, but we're going to look at, at the, the text that we just had tonight. And there's four markers. that I think these are four things that the members of a great church will be practicing. Uh, the members will practice sanctification. Uh, we'll look at that in verses 23 and 24. The members will practice prayer. Uh, verse 25, the members will practice love toward one another. Verse 26, and then we'll finish up with uh, the members will practice Bible study and really the application of the Bible to their lives in verse 27. Uh, but as we start tonight, the members will practice sanctification. Uh, too often the testimony of a church has been compromised excuse me, and in some cases destroyed because the members lived an impure and ungodly life. It seems like over and over you hear of a church that has a moral failure uh, of somebody, whether it's the pastor or the people uh, that may not necessarily be in full-time ministry. Oftentimes, we hear usually when it's of the pastor. Um, people tend to make a big deal out of that. But the reality is anybody can compromise the effectiveness of the church uh, because of a lack of ungodly living. Uh, in order for a church to be great, the members must live a sanctified or godly life. Um, the Apostle Paul is urging them to do that here. Uh, and, and we know it's not in our own power that this happens, but the doctrine of sanctification has been corrupted by some. And, and we, won't, we won't dig too deep here, but there are some that say justification is by sanctification. Right? That somehow we can live good enough to, be, to earn our salvation. That's not Bible. Uh, that is not sanctification. Or there are those that say preservation is by sanctification. 
But we, we have to do good things. We've got to be a good person. We've got to walk right to keep our salvation. That's not Bible either. Uh, that's not what biblical sanctification means. And so oftentimes, because people will teach things like that, that you've got to be a good person to get to heaven, or you've got to be a good person to keep your salvation, uh, consequently, they replace the Spirit's work with man-made rules. Uh, and they <clears throat> essentially say sanctification is the believer's ability to keep their rules, and they care little about what takes place in the heart. Uh, but our, our Savior uh, says the heart is the most important part of it. Uh, it. All of this takes place in the heart. Jesus places the emphasis there. It, love God with all your heart, he says. The heart must be changed to begin the process of sanctification. And so sanctification begins at salvation, I would say. Uh, and so the Bible speaks much of this idea or the doctrine of sanctification. And so we're going to look at a quick couple definitions of what sanctification is. Um, we know that it's a Bible term. Here in our text... Uh, it says here uh, in our text, <clears throat> I just lost my place, excuse me. Uh, it says in our text, sanctify you holy. So this idea of, of sanctification. And sanctification is the process of being made holy, resulting in a changed lifestyle. The process by which, according to the will of God, we are made to be partakers of His holiness. We are conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, the process of sanctification. Here's what Webster's 1828 dictionary says. The act of making holy. In an evangelical sense, the act of God's grace by which the affections of men are purified and alienated from sin and the world and exalted to a supreme love to God. I think that's a pretty good definition. Uh, how we're changed to be more like Christ and and we love God more. And so this idea of sanctification is a progressive work that began at regeneration, at salvation. It begins when we receive Christ. When we are quickened, uh, when God makes us alive spiritually, uh, it is the process that begins in our lives of sanctification. And uh, it's, it's started by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, and it's continued through the work of the Holy Spirit. In our lives. For the child of God, this is the next step in the Christian's journey. Uh, as you wait for the Lord. Look at, look at our passage. In every, uh, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is going to be taking place until the Lord returns. Uh, this process of sanctification. After we've received Christ, there, you're never going to be perfect. There's no second work of grace that makes you sinless. Uh, that's not Bible. Uh, we are continually going to be conformed to the image of Christ. Now, what I will say is, you will be different over time as God works on you and changes you. And the, the primary, uh, it's really not in my notes, but the primary instrument that God uses for sanctification is His Word. Uh, as we get in His Word and the Holy Spirit speak to our heart, speaks to our heart and identifies error, identifies sin in our life, and we begin to change and become doers of the word, and we make application, and we begin to be conformed to Christ day by day. That is sanctification. Listen, there's an expectation of this in the life of a Christian. 
We are called saints. Are we not? What does the word saint mean? It's consecrated. It's holy. It's separated. That's the whole idea. At salvation, we receive Christ. We are quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. And we are now different than the lost. Uh, we've been made alive. Uh, we are saints. Uh, the Apostle Paul, oftentimes when we think of saints, we think of the great heroes of the faith. Boy, St. Peter, St. Paul, and all these people. And, and we won't even get into the, the sainthood of the, the Catholic Church teaches. But, but what I'm saying is oftentimes that's what we think. But the reality is when we see that word in our Bibles, God is talking about those that are believers, those that are in Christ. We're all saints. We're, there, there is an expectation that we will be different. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, for we were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. There is an expectation that we will conduct ourselves differently than when we were unsaved. When we were spiritually dead, before we were quickened. So this begs the questions, how do people live godly, sanctified lives? I believe the Apostle Paul gives some answers here in this text. And uh, my prayer tonight is that we would give heed to these things and pray that God will perform this in our lives. If we want to be a great church, if we want to be a church that's in action to fulfill the Great Commission, uh, we need to be a sanctified people. We need to ask God to do this in our lives. Listen, it, God's going to do this. God of peace sanctify you holy. God's desire is for us to be holy sanctified. Uh, perfect. Look at what it, in verse 24 it says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. So listen, this isn't something that we drum up of ourselves. It's not something that we figure. It's not conforming to rules and regulations. Now we may put some standards in our lives to help protect us. We don't do certain things. We don't go certain places because we, those, are, those are different standards that we have to protect us. Uh, but the reality is, uh, we don't have to hold to any set rules. We just need to walk with our God. And, and I hope I can make this make sense here in the next few moments um, and where I think the Apostle Paul is drawing some of these thoughts from. But, but just so we're clear, sanctification is, is what some people might say a Trinitarian work. God the Father chose it. God the Son died to secure it. And God the Holy Spirit initiates it in our lives and carries the work out. The, the work of it out in our lives. So again, it begins when we're regenerated or when we receive Christ, when we're born again, when we're spiritually awakened. Uh, and, and at that moment, you might say, our progressive sanctification begins. Uh, God begins to change us to be more like Him. Uh, and so I think the Apostle Paul, I think it's fair to say that he is referencing the great commandment here. Look at verse 23. It says, The very God of peace... Uh, sanctify you wholly, and I pray, uh, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord. And, and uh, I think we can make the argument that it's a reference to uh, the great commandment. Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38 say this, And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And so with these two texts, the one in Matthew that I just read to you tonight, and then our, our text passage here in 1 Thessalonians 5, we see there are commands for the entire sanctification of every believer. Uh, 
God wants us to be sanctified, to be conformed more into the image of Christ. Uh, it's a priority commandment in Scripture. Jesus says it's the first uh, or, or the great commandment. We are to love the Lord thy God with all the heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. We are to love him with all that we are. That is our sanctification, totally set apart for God. Listen, if you love God with your entire being, there will be no area of your life that's not pleasing to him. Are you getting what I'm saying tonight? Do you love God? Commit your life to him. Commit everything, your mind, your spirit, your body. All of you is God's. That's the expectation. You're bought with a price in Christ. And so, God, that's God's desire. He died that that would be the case in your life. That you would love Him. And I, and I think if we truly understood our sin, it would cause us to love our God more. Because we'd understand what we're forgiven of. And how wicked we are. It's no mystery, I, I think, why Paul would reference this. Uh, for the sanctification of the church. Uh, listen, the chief priority for God's people is for God to be glorified. And how do we do that? By living a sanctified life. Everything in our life, because of our love for Him, is dedicated to Him. And so we will be different. Throughout Paul's writings, there's a theme of separation from worldliness, uh, a call to sanctification of God's people. Uh, there's really a demand for holiness. Uh, listen, believers are called saints. All of these are outgrowths of the very first commandment. To love God with your heart, soul, and mind. We are to love God with all of our heart, soul, and our mind. And the great news is, verse 24 says, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Again, this isn't something we do of ourselves. It's, we don't have to try to figure out how to be good enough, how to live a life to please God enough. Listen, again, if you would just love God, understanding that He first loved you, it would cause you to act differently. Um, and we'll, we should get to it. We'll talk about being in the Word of God here and how that plays a part into sanctification, um, uh, really the, the main instrument of that. But... Um, we don't drum this up of ourselves. God chose this for us. And he's the one that he's faithful that calleth you who also will do it. He has the ability, the capability to do all this in your life. Godliness can be a reality because God can perform in our lives. He empowers us through the Spirit. Here's Romans 8, verses 8 through 13. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And so it's all through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we received Him. We are quickened and indwelled by the Spirit. We are empowered to live a sanctified life. 
And again, in verse 24, it says he is faithful. This means that he can be trusted and relied upon concerning all that he has said. God's able to do this in our lives. Oftentimes, it's our unwillingness to yield. Listen, when we get into the perfect law of liberty and, and, and God points something out in our life that says that ought not be there, it's only because of our unwillingness to yield to him and to let that thing go that we have problems in this area. And we struggle. Listen, he's given us all that we need. We just need, and listen, by the way, he'll help, he'll help us have a yielding spirit. Maybe that will be through chastisement. Or maybe that will be because we've asked him, Lord, help me. Listen, we're frail. We're weak. We're but dust. Uh, we need his help. And so uh, he has given us what we need. And listen, he will perform it. He's faithful. He can do it. He can be relied upon. Listen, in Christ, we have all that we need to be successfully conformed to the image of Christ. It can happen in our lives. We better move along or we're not going to get through these four points I have. But another marker is the members practice prayer. Look at verse 25. It says, brethren, pray for us. What a selfish thing to say. No, it's really not. If you understand the fact that we all need prayer. The Apostle Paul understood that his ministry couldn't continue on without the prayer of the saints. And listen, I think he was trusting that these were sanctified saints. Saints that could get a hold of God. Saints that that walked with God. Praying members are essential to a great church. And I would say they're essential to have power in the church. We need, God, we need God's, God's power here. We need the Holy Spirit filling. We need, we need God to work. And, and really the only way we can really grasp on that sometimes is through prayer. Asking God to work on our behalf. And specifically here in our text, uh, one particular area that we ought to be praying for is the leaders in the church. This is uh, uh, an interesting statement here. I guess it's not interesting. It's just what the Bible says. But um, I would say we ought to especially be praying for our pastor. And I don't know why these things always come up. It seems like he's gone. But listen, we need to pray for him. Uh, he needs God to move in his life. He needs the Holy Spirit's indwelling. He needs insight and wisdom from God above that he might lead and direct and guide the church. And so here in our, our text, this is a personal possessive pronoun in the first person, the Apostle Paul. So uh, it's written here in the first person, which indicates that the writer is the subject of the action. He wants them to pray for him. And it says us. And we can see that that us is most likely Paul, Silvanius, and Timotheus. In uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians. So it's those three. So I, I'm, I'm thinking that those are the three. He says, pray for us. And so listen, he's encouraging the church to pray for the leaders. To pray for those uh, that lead and direct the ministries uh, of a church. And, and I understand the Apostle Paul's ministry was a little different than maybe what a, a typical pastor or church leadership is. Uh, but I think we can make the application tonight that we ought to be praying for those uh, that labor among us, those that are in leadership. And Paul often requests prayers on his behalf. 
Um, he, he certainly did. Uh, Romans 15, verses 30 and 31, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them uh, that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have uh, for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. And so he is saying, I need your prayers that the ministry can, can carry on. I need your prayers uh, that God's work can be accomplished in and through me. And so I, I challenge you tonight uh, that a marker of a great church is a church that prays for their pastor. Amen. Uh, praying for those that are, are uh, really uh, laboring uh, for the good of the flock. But it's also an affectionate address. It says, brethren. Uh, he says, brethren, pray for us. Uh, and that's really the emphasis in the beginning of that, that sentence there. And it says, Paul requested that the praying uh, for him be motivated by the ties of Christian brotherhood. Uh, this is a, a special thing, uh, Christian brotherhood. And uh, I thought of the band of brothers. And uh, oftentimes in a military sense, you hear that, that term used. Um, but there's something special about those men that have gone to war together. They have a bond uh, that really you, you can't find really anywhere else. I would say if we could get a hold of a couple of the things that we're going to look about tonight. We're talking about this holy kiss here in a few moments, Lord willing. Um, and just the love that we have for one another. Um, <clears throat> I think we can, can make a connection and kind of understand those people that have gone to war together and seen people bleed and die in that band of brothers that they've had. And so he says, brethren, and so he, he, he invokes the, uh, the common ground that they have in Christ. And <clears throat> there are a couple people, I won't name them, uh, but there's two or three people that if they ever call me, I will drop what I'm doing and go to help them uh, because I was deployed with them. And there were things that, that I, I can't explain it. We just have a bond. I, there's, I, don't I won't talk for, to them for months, even years. And they'll reach out to me and I'll, that, uh, I will not miss that phone call because of the bond that we have. Um, and one of them went through some very hard times in his marriage and, and some difficult things that were going through his family. And he didn't, he, he's Catholic. He's not even, you know, I've shared the gospel with him. He, he has not received Christ uh, to my knowledge. But the first person he reached out to was me. I think partly because he knew I was a Christian, but I think more so he knew that he could trust me because we had a bond. We'd spent some intimate time together in dangerous places. Listen, we need to pray for one another. We are at war. Listen, our pastor is at war for us. Day in and day out. Uh, standing up and, and, and for the church. And so we ought to be praying for him. But certainly our prayers do not end at praying for those in leadership roles. First Timothy Two, one, I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. 
James 5.16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We can accomplish much in our prayer. We need to band together. We need to set aside our petty differences. Listen, I know you guys have heard these types of things before, but when I was in the Air Force, I never cared about the color of the skin of the person next to me. I never cared about their education level. I didn't care how straight their teeth were. I did care if their hair was cut, especially if they were subordinate to me. But I think you understand what I'm saying. Those things are not important. My primary focus was, are they trained? And are they equipped? And are they ready to accomplish the mission that we're tasked with? Listen, we ought to band together as the people of God, as a great church, and pray for one another. And and I'm not talking about those fleshly prayers. Lord, I pray that you just do a work in their heart that they would just see because you think you're right. I'm talking about honest prayer that God would change your life and their life and our lives together that we would be more sanctified, to be more like Christ, that we could be more effective to accomplish what God's called us to do. Uh, Praying for each other. Here's what Albert Barnes says, and speaking back to kind of the reference of praying for those in leadership. Albert Barnes says this, as commentary on uh, verse 25, it says, He was a man of like passions as others, liable to the same temptations, engaged in an arduous work, often called to meet with opposition and exposed to peril and want, and he particularly needed prayers of the people of God. A minister surrounded as he is by temptations is in greater danger if he has not prayers of his people. Without those prayers, he will be likely to or he will be likely to accomplish little in the case or in the cause of his master. His own devotions in the sanctuary be formal and frigid, and the word which he preaches will likely uh, <clears throat> will be likely to come from a cold and heavy heart, and to false and to fall also on the cold and heavy hearts. There is no way in which a people can better advance the cause of piety in their own hearts than by praying much for their minister. And I would say we could make that application to praying much for each each other, one another. We're commanded to do so. We ought to be a praying church. A great church will be marked by being a praying church. Number three tonight, uh, the members... Uh, a mark of a, of a great church, the members will practice love one toward another. Look at verse 26. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. If we're not careful, we can form cliques, and they really can be the death, the death of a con- congregation. We can have a, these exclusive groups that we only fellowship with certain people. That's not Christ-like. Um, And listen, God's people need to be friendly and open to one another. To everybody. Listen, this takes some effort. It does. Especially if you're not a people person. So I don't don't know if you guys, my wife is maybe the only person, maybe my kids a little bit, but my wife for sure. Sometimes I leave fellowshiped out. I'm not a fellowship social butterfly. I purposely 
Try to engage people. I would be fine coming in, sitting down. Amen. Praise the Lord. Good preaching. Shout hallelujah in the song service and walk out with talking to hardly anybody. That's just my, my personality. What I'm trying to tell you tonight is we have to put effort into this. And I don't think we fully understand this holy kiss uh, here in our culture. Uh, but I think if we would put effort into it, we'll understand there's great reward in this. There's an imperative here. The word greet here means to enfold in the arms, to salute, to welcome, to embrace, uh, to salute. It conveys the thought of extending a friendly, loving greeting to others. And I think I, I, I've made mention of the Holy Kiss uh, recently, but uh, so we won't labor here too much. But it was very common in, in these cultures to uh, greet one another with a kiss, probably on the side of the face or the cheek. And, and my understanding is sometimes there isn't even any lip contact. It's more of a, you know, there, there, there may or may not be contact with the lips to the cheek. But um, <clears throat> I think there's a greater indication of what's taking place in the people here than just a physical outward expression. It identifies the deep love that they have for one another. It, it, if we go back to that idea of the band of brothers, it identifies with that deep band or that common love that they have in Christ for one another. <clears throat> Do you love our church? Do you love them enough to give them a kiss? I'm not expecting you to give them a kiss, by the way. I think today our handshake serves the similar purpose. Um, but I would say it's probably not as intimate as what we see in Scripture. I think they had a far deeper, and our, our society is far more superficial than what we see taking place in the Scriptures with, with the disciples leaning upon the Savior in those types of things. And I'm not asking Brother George to come lean on my breast or anything tonight. But what I'm saying is we ought to have a deep bond in love for one another. Because we're at war together. And so what I would say, holy denotes, uh, and it's really an expression that it's a Christian love uh, toward fellow believers. I don't think there's any physical impurity or moral uh, things going on here. It's morally blameless, I guess you, should, you could say. Uh, this is a consecrated or a sacred thing here. Uh, it's not something that is, uh, that is uh, of a sensual nature. So I think it's an expression of Christian affection and, the, and, and really the idea of keeping it holy would be to guard against any improper familiarity or anything like that. And so uh, <clears throat> Luke twenty two forty seven, this is the passage where J Judas betrays the Son of Man with a kiss. If you want, you can turn there. Uh, we'll finish here in a, in a few minutes. But Luke 22 47 and 48 says this, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? The kiss was a sign of affection and kinship. And so when Judas attempts this, uh, really it is such a contrary way of betraying uh, the one that he says that he loves. Uh, and I, I think that adds that much more injury to Christ. 
Because this was a sign of affection and love and a care one for another. And Judas uses it as the symbol to the others to betray the Savior. I think we're too superficial in our society and we lack depth. We don't open up to each other. At least at times, we have to admit that. I think we could learn a lot from the great bond that we see the disciples had with the Savior and amongst one another. And how they, could you imagine what it would have been like? You know, and I'm saying, I've been to churches down south where they hug you like crazy. Those churches sometimes I feel are more genuine. And that's, and what I'm saying tonight is that's super foreign for me because from where I come from, it's a 12 inch rule. It's not six inches. (laughs) Now I'm not kidding. A handshake is about all you're getting where I'm from with people that you love and respect greatly. I think we would do well to get to know people. We could love them at a greater level if we understand. Listen, sometimes when you learn the struggles of somebody, it causes you to have a deeper love for them because you know they're struggling and you're praying for them. You're asking God to do a work to sanctify and bring them along to the next level. And that brings this bond that we have and we love one another and we care for one another. There's a brotherhood amongst believers and I think it's similar to this band of brothers. And tonight my prayer is for our church that we would be bound together in love. That we would truly love one another and care for one another. Listen, sometimes people just need some help. Help them out. You're not always the one that needs help. And lastly tonight, I think the mark of a, of, of a good church is those that practice Bible study or Bible reading and application of the Word of God to their lives. Look at verse 27. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. I don't think any congregation can be what it should be apart from diligently studying God's Word. And... It, Look at what it says there. It says, unto all the holy brethren. All of us individually have a responsibility to be in the Word of God. We ought to be faithful in our... And listen, and this plays right back into the idea of sanctification. Uh, The instrument of, of, of sanctification that God uses with the Holy Spirit is the Word of God. How do we know more about Christ and what we ought to be? And how we ought to act and conduct ourselves in, through the Word of God. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This is Christ. We ought to be in the Bible. Each member must take it upon himself to learn as much of the Word of God as he can. Do you make matters of Bible study of importance in your personal life? Listen, you're not going to grow. You're not going to go on in sanctification if the only time you have Bible is Sunday morning, Sunday night or Wednesday. You need far more than that. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And so, listen, we need food. We need to eat for sustenance and, and, and survival. Spiritually speaking, we need the word of God for sustenance that we can survive and grow. Uh, we need to be in the word of God as individuals. Don't just wait for the preacher to do it for you. Don't just wait for the Sunday school teacher to do it for you. Uh, get in the Bible. Paul put these Christians under a solemn duty to read his epistle to the entire congregation. Look what it says here. The word charge carries the idea of to put to it under an oath. Uh, and he makes this, this charge serious uh, to read this epistle. It says, by the Lord. Paul charged them by the Lord or in the Lord's name to read the epistle to the entire congregation. It was a big deal. It was important for them to get into the Word of God. Paul, Paul wanted his readers to understand the instructions of the Word of God. They do not do so without reading and studying it. You can't understand it if you don't read it and study it. Listen, there's so many passages I thought I understood. And you start reading and studying a little bit. And it's like, wow, I'm an ignoramus. I had no idea. And then on top of that, you might be on the right track, but it's far deeper than you ever thought. The way that the Bible connects to itself, and as you, as you look at it from Genesis to Revelation, there's so many connections that I never made early in my Christian life. I didn't think it existed. But it does, but you have to get in the Word. You have to study the Word. You have to read the Word. A great church gives priority to the Word of God. We see a great thing about the, the Christians in Berea. Acts 17, 11, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures once in a while. Every other day. No, daily. I think you guys understand. It was daily. They searched daily whether those things were so. Listen, Bible study, Bible reading goes hand in hand with the work of sanctification of God in our life. We must be in our Bibles. As we read and study the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the error or the sin in our life and leads us in the way of Christ. We must be in our Bibles. But that in Acts chapter 11, that readiness of mind has the idea of a predisposition. Alacrity. There's a big word for you. I had to look it up. Uh, do you ever go for, look for a definition and then they use a word like alacrity? That doesn't help me. What in the world? But it's a willingness. They're ready. Listen, they have a readiness of mind to do what the Word of God tells them to do before they even know what it says it's going to tell them. They were ready. They had a readiness of mind. They were predisposed to be obedient to the Word of God as it was revealed. <clears throat> don't take the preacher's word for it. Go home and study it for yourself and be ready to do it. Be ready. A, a great church will be a church that is in the Bible. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And so listen, if we individually are in our, in our Bibles and this process of sanctification is taking place and we're praying for one another and we're showing love toward one another, we're going to be blessed indeed.
If we are to be a great church, we must practice sanctification, prayer. We need to love one another and we need to be in our Bibles. And I'll just say this in closing because I'm already a little bit late, but uh, verse 28 says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Listen, all this happens by the grace of God. For by grace are you saved, His his grace sustains us, His grace is sufficient, and and if it wasn't for Him and His grace, where would we be? I want to be a great church. In order to do that, we need to individually be great. God, help us to demonstrate these markers in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, I do thank You for... The challenge this was to my heart, and I pray, Lord, that it was a blessing to the people tonight. And I pray that as we depart our places, or this place here tonight, and go to our homes, Lord, that you would just help us to make application of your word in our life. Lord, if we're lacking in one of these areas, I pray that you would help us. Lord, that you would just sanctify us and conform us to be more like Christ. And Father, we do pray for our pastor. And Mrs. Brooks, Lord, is there a way? We do thank you for the time that they are able to get away for a couple days. And we just pray that they can disengage and be refreshed. And we ask, Lord, that you just give them safety and protection. And Father, now we pray that you would bless each one of our families as we go home tonight, Lord. Help us as we go out into the community tomorrow to be a light for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.